May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This morning, we come to a passage that we know as the Great Commission. And this passage of scripture from Matthew has served as the goal for many a Christian evangelist and missionary. The buildup to this, this passage from Matthew is the resurrection story of Jesus. And in Matthew, like the other gospels, it begins with the women going to the tomb and finding it empty. But it also includes an earthquake, an appearance of angels, guards being struck down and lying on the ground as though they were dead, and the angels telling the women to go to the disciples and tell them that Jesus has risen and has gone ahead of them to Galilee. Amen. Jesus also then appears to the women, giving the same instruction. And then before we get to the Great Commission, Matthew tells us a story of a conspiracy of the guards and the chief priest of the temple to cover up what had happened. After all of this, the 11 disciples do as Jesus told the women to tell them to do, and that's they go to Galilee, and they go to a mountain, and there Jesus appears to them. And their response is what you would probably expect of being in the presence of the risen Lord is they worship him. But the passage tells us that in that worship, some of them doubted. Yes. It seems that doubt is inseparable from a believer's experience. And even when everything the disciples needed to believe was literally standing in front of them, doubt is still there. But their doubt notwithstanding, Jesus gives the disciples their instructions. First, Jesus establishes that he has received all, all authority in both heaven and on earth. The authority that Jesus has does not come from the powers of Rome or from the temple guards or the temple priests. The authority that Jesus has comes from God. Amen. And he has received this authority from God because Jesus is God. The guards and the temple priests and the powers can conspire all they want, but they cannot change the reality of the risen God in Christ. Second, by the authority that Jesus has received, he sends the disciples not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations and tells them to make them disciples. And the way that Jesus tells them that you make disciples is through baptism. Amen. Not through John the Baptist's baptism, mm -hmm. but through the baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's because of this instruction about baptism that this reading is assigned for today. Today is Trinity Sunday. 
It's the Sunday in the church year where we are called on to celebrate the reality and our experience as God as Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the writer of Matthew is not giving us some full theological statement about how we should understand the Trinity. It would take nearly 500 years for the church to come up with a statement that attempted to describe and outline the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity. That statement is what we have come to call the Nicene Creed, but the history of this creed is it actually took four times, four ecumenical councils over some 100, 200 years of church leaders coming together to wrestle with the issues that are found in the creed. Many parts of the creeds were addressed towards heresies of the day, particularly heresies concerning the person of Jesus and his relationship to God. Now today, we hear heresies, and we can pretty quickly dismiss the heretic and put them aside, but we have the benefit of 1,500 years of all of these battles and questions being wrestled with. In those early days of the church, the so-called heretics and the church fathers were all believers that worshiped God but in their worship and in their wrestling with God and faith, some doubted and some questioned, and they did the best they could to find answers. The Nicene Creed is the response to this and is an attempt to give some certainty to the faithful and to give, not to eliminate our questions necessarily, but to give guidance to them. Even with the creed, even with thousands of years of church scholarship, the Trinity is still a stumbling point. And many churches around the Episcopal Church today, if the main pastor has the option, this sermon is frequently given to someone else, an eager seminarian or a junior priest to, to wrestle with this and to walk a fine line and try not to commit heresy from the pulpit. Because the problem with the mystery of the Trinity is that it's a mystery. And any time that we try to use some image or metaphor to help us understand it, we get trapped in a heresy. Because mysteries don't lend themselves to words. Our readings this Sunday all point us to the Trinity. Genesis brings us back to the point of creation and invites us to consider the presence of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God brings form and order out of chaos. In Romans, we get the familiar formula of Paul's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. And then, of course, in Matthew, we get this instruction concerning baptism. So from these three scriptural references to the Trinity, what can we learn? 
When I hear the creation story from Genesis, I can't help but think of a poem that we've read here before, which is by James Weldon Johnson. And James Weldon Johnson, in attempting to, to put creation into poetry, into words that could be understood, begins his poem about creation. And God stepped out on space. And he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. In the creation story, I hear the story of a God that is the source of light and life and is also the source of relationship. Relationship between humans and animals and plants and the world that we live on, but also the relationship with God. In Romans, Paul's parting blessing comes after he has encouraged his brothers and sisters to agree and to live in peace and to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is what we are doing when we exchange the peace on Sunday mornings. Now it's more handshakes than it is kisses on the cheek, but we are cementing the importance of relationship within our life of faith, and Paul is encouraging and blessing the followers of Christ in Rome to be in relationship with one another, to not be at odds or undercutting or fighting each other, but to be in relationship with each other so that they could be in relationship with God. In Matthew, Jesus gives us the instruction of how to make to disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Trinity. But there is a second part to that instruction, which is they are to teach them. Just as we talked about last week when we celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit and we renewed our baptismal vows, we talked about that in baptism we are received most fully into the family of God. Through baptism, we are marked as Christ's own forever. And through baptism, we enter fully into relationship with God and with the community of believers that we call the church. And it's through that sustained relationship that we are taught to learn and grow our faith. In celebrating the unity of the Trinity this Sunday, we celebrate that our very creation is relationship, community, and love. That the relationship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to each other, however inexplainable or confusing it is, is the source of the love and relationship that we share today with each other. The Trinity reminds us that we are not alone, Amen. that we bring the faith that is given to us by God, we bring our doubts, our uncertainties, our disappointments, we bring our joy and our love and our triumphs, and we come together in the community called the church and offer that all up in worship. Matthew's gospel ends differently than the others. The writers of Mark and Luke and John end their gospels with a little summary of what's happened and what's about to happen to sort of wrap things up and bring things to a neat conclusion. 
But the writer of Matthew ends his gospel with the words of Jesus, with this instruction from Jesus that the disciples should go out into the world and should baptize and should teach, and that they should go to all nations, all people, and to teach them to make relationships centered on the love and experience of God as Trinity. The last sentence of Matthew in our translation begins with the phrase, and remember. Now this is the New Revised Standard Version. This is how they translate it. It's perfectly fine, but it could also translate to behold. And to me, I think that might be the better translation. If we talk about remembering something, we automatically begin to think about things that happened in the past, that are done, that are completed. But when we hear the word behold, we look forward. We look to see what is being pointed at. And what Jesus is telling us more so than the creed ever could because I think the Trinity is more of an experience than it ever has been a list of words to describe how it actually happens. Jesus, in this closing passage of the Gospel of Matthew, looks to the disciples and he says, don't look back, but look forward. Behold that no matter what comes, no matter where you go, no matter the persecutions, the doubts, the troubles, the successes, no matter what, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen.